the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Earnestly seek to commend yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. We're glad you're joining us for today's program, A Word from the Word, with your host, Pastor Tom, who will unpack for us the richness and beauty of the Bible's original languages as they bear on key words and concepts from both Testaments. Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining me on A Word from the Word. Perhaps some are not familiar with the annual church calendar, especially the Easter season. I like resurrection season. Its formal name is Easter Tide and lasts 40 days, culminating with Jesus' ascension found in Act 1. Ten days later, the Jews celebrated the Feast of Pentecost, meaning 50 days. 50 days after the Feast of Weeks, one of the major Jewish holidays, celebrated 49 days or seven weeks after Passover. The Jews call it Shavuot for short. In Acts 2, we're told that the Holy Spirit descended on the apostles on the day of Pentecost, sometimes referred to as the birth of the church. In Acts 1, right before the resurrected Jesus ascended into heaven, he told his disciples about the promise of the Father, the gift of the Holy Spirit, soon to come and empower them to be his witnesses. They were to wait for him, for only through the Holy Spirit would they be empowered. Friends, the five sessions leading up to today's session were predicated on two provocative questions. The annual celebration is now past, but is the living now over? And has this celebration now propelled us to live out the resurrection life? I also propose that to live out this resurrection life, we must start by realizing the road to the resurrection of our Redeemer was paved with divine paradoxes. And this road was short as we sliced a piece of Jesus' teaching ministry out of the last two or so weeks of his life, where he zeroed in on these key paradoxes of the kingdom of God. Paradoxes representing apparent contradictions, even reversals in thinking patterns. After all, friends, do we see God's kingdom and this world's kingdom as kingdoms in conflict? As mindsets in conflict? Sometimes I wonder... Scripture relates these kingdoms in conflict in a few ways. Through Paul, the carnal Christian life is contrasted with the spiritually mature Christian life. Through Jesus, the self-driven life, or the suke life, is contrasted with the spirit-governed life, or the zoe life. Do these terms ring a bell? 
Our English translations somewhat mask these original terms and meanings. Well, last time I said the divine paradoxes didn't end with the triumphal entry, our Palm Sunday. And today I'm going to say these divine paradoxes don't end with Good Friday or Resurrection Sunday either. And friends, if you missed any sessions in this Resurrection Rewind series, just go to faithtalk1360.com for the podcast. My take is that the two greatest paradoxes sprung on the first century Christ followers were the paradoxes of the crucifixion and the resurrection. So today's finale, part six, is the Good Friday and Res Sunday paradoxes. And our subtitle, Conquest Our Way or God's Way? Well, you might be thinking, Pastor Tom, I already heard a Good Friday and Easter Sunday sermon. And I'd reply, not like this one. Friends, I've combined the Good Friday and Res Sunday paradoxes in today's single session. Listen carefully for the seeming contradictions or reversals in thinking patterns as I continue. We humans sure love to criticize God, complain about what he's doing wrong, if he exists. Some express their complaints like this. God is so lucky to live in heaven. Everything's just sweetness and light. No weeping, pain, fear, hunger, or hatred. What could he possibly know what we humans have been forced to endure in this world? It sure seems God leads a pretty sheltered life. Well, friends, imagine that at the end of time... Billions of humans are spread out on a great plain before God's throne. Some talk heatedly, not with cringing shame, but actually with belligerence. How can God judge us? One man yelled. Then a woman snapped. What does he know about suffering? Jerking back his her sleeve to show a tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp, we endured terror, beatings, torture, and death. In another group, a black man lowered his collar, blurting, What about this? showing his ugly rope burn. Lynched for no crime but being black. We were wrenched from loved ones, suffocated in slave ships, toiled till death gave release. Across this plane, as far as one could see, were hundreds of groups. Each had their complaint against God for allowing evil and suffering in his world. God was pretty lucky up there. What did he know about what they were forced to endure down here? They repeated, God sure seems to lead a pretty sheltered life. Finally, each group sent a leader, picked because they suffered the most. A Jew, a black, an untouchable from India, an illegitimate person, a victim of Hiroshima, and a Siberian slave camp survivor. They each exchanged stories. Then they were ready to present their case to God. It was really quite simple. Before he qualified to judge them, he must endure what they endured. So they decided to sentence God to live on earth as a man. But since he was God, they imposed some safeguards so he couldn't use his divine powers to help himself, like have him be born a Jew, have the legitimacy of his birth be doubted so no one knew his real father, have him champion a cause so just yet radical that it brings down on him the hate, condemnation, and efforts of every traditional and established religious authority to execute him. Have him try to describe what no one has ever seen, tasted, heard, or smelled. Communicate God to people. Have him betrayed by his dearest friend. Have him indicted on false charges, tried before a prejudiced jury, and convicted by a cowardly judge. Have him experience what it's like to be terribly alone, completely abandoned by every living thing. Have him tortured and then let him die, and have him die the most humiliating death with common thieves. 
While each leader announced his part of the sentence, loud murmurs of approval went up from the great throngs of people spread out before God's throne. When the last leader finished, there was a long silence. No one uttered a word or moved, because instantly it struck them. God had already served his sentence. Friends, we're sometimes guilty of thinking of God the way these groups did, who initially charged that God leads a pretty sheltered life. You know, way out there, way up there. There's actually a word in theology for this perception. It's transcendence, a fancy word for God being far above us, seemingly distant from us. But if this is the only way we perceive God, we've left out an important piece of the puzzle, the other half of the story, the other side of the coin. You see, our theology falls short unless we also perceive God's imminence, another fancy word that means, for our context, up close and personal. Friends, the Christian view of God is that the transcendent God became up close and personal with us in Jesus, and why Jesus is called the god Man. God loved us so much, he didn't send an angel, he didn't send a committee, but he did send his only son, Jesus. God the Son became human and lived among us. Through Jesus' birth, life, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension, we learn God has not led a pretty sheltered life. Friends, in that phrase, the God-man, we see and experience both the transcendence and imminence of God. Transcendence in the word God, imminence in the word man. Have you ever wondered, just how near is God to us? Jesus himself said it best in John fourteen twenty three, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. In John 15, 4, he adds, Abide in me, and I in you. Jesus abiding in us meant that God was as near as he could be. Friends, I've been asked, what's so good about Good Friday? Or why is it even called Good Friday? These are reasonable questions. It certainly wasn't good for Jesus, right? Nor good for his followers either. After all, their hopes were totally dashed to the ground. Scripture tells us this. Friends, the most revealing, telling, and remarkable text for me that even makes me shudder is Luke 24, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. You know the story. Remember, after Jesus' resurrection, he briefly disguised himself and meets up with them and asks, What are you two discussing? Let's join them at verse 17. They stood still, their faces downcast. I've got to pause here because we can easily glide right past this verse and totally miss its significant truth. You see, downcast is the key word. Other translations say, looking sad, looking discouraged, looking sad and gloomy, looking full of sorrow. Gloomy appears for a good reason. Our English translations valiantly attempt to communicate the depth of this term, yet no single English word suffices. A modern-day equivalent of this ancient idea would be depressed. In verse 19, Jesus asks another question, and the two reply, Jesus of Nazareth was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Did you hear that, friends? Let's read that as if we were them. 
But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Hear that doom and gloom? Sense their depression? Feel their hopes dashed to the ground? Can't we tell that the crucifixion ended it all for them? Crucifixion was final. It stole their hopes for the kingdom of God finally breaking forth on Israel. The crucifixion destroyed any notion that this man really was their Messiah. After all, their Messiah, their hope, had been executed. End of story. We could almost side with them, couldn't we? We would equally conclude that this road to the redemption of the Redeemer was unfortunately a detour, a failed mission, a grandiose scheme gone bad, a good plan gone awry, just the result of a messianic delusion on the part of a first-century teacher, sage and revolutionary, with a messiah complex that came to a sad and sudden end. Let's face it, friends, the skeptics and liberal scholars of our day level these same arguments against Christianity and the Bible, attacking the very core of our beliefs. The mainstream media even chime in by interviewing these liberal scholars as though they had the last word. But scrutinizing the whole of Scripture, we learn this road to the redemption of our Redeemer was part of a blueprint laid out before the foundation of the world. Revelation 13.8 says, All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life. The Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. Acts 2.22-24 say, Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. It turned out Jesus' disciples later connected the dots and understood their Hebrew scriptures pointed to and foretold their Messiah's death and resurrection. Ah, what a paradox! In Acts 2, 25-36, Peter quotes Psalm 16. In Acts 3, 18-23, he quotes Deuteronomy 18. In Acts 8, 29-35, Philip quotes Isaiah 53. In Acts 13, 23-41, Paul quotes Psalms 2 and 16, Isaiah 55, and Habakkuk 1. All this is further confirmed by 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul draws from an obviously earlier church tradition already established. He begins with, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you stand. For I delivered as of first importance what I also received, that Messiah died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Remember, this is our Old Testament, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Later he adds, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. If we have only hoped in Christ in this life, we are of all men most to be pitied. Friends, around 1930, Nikolai Berkarin, a Russian communist leader, traveled from Moscow to Kiev to address a large gathering on atheism. One solid hour he aimed his heavy atheistic artillery at Christianity, 
firing arguments and ridicule. Finally, his tirade ended. Surveying the crowd's faces, they appeared like their faith was smoldering ashes. He then proudly demanded, "'Are there any questions?' Surprisingly, one man stood up and asked to speak. He walked up to the stage and stood next to Bacarin. The audience was silent, breathless. This man also surveyed the crowd. Suddenly he shouted an ancient Orthodox Christian greeting. Christ is risen! At once the assembly sprung to their feet, their response sounding like an avalanche. He is risen indeed! Friends, being Greek, I know what that Orthodox greeting is in its original language. Christos Anesti, meaning Christ is risen. In the reply, Anesti Alethos, meaning literally risen indeed, but understood to mean he is risen indeed. Well, let's pause here, friends. If you tuned in late, you're listening to A Word from the Word with me, your host, Pastor Tom. I want you to know how valuable you are as listeners to A Word from the Word, which is listener-funded. Your financial partnership keeps this program on the air, which disciples many Christians without a church home, plus those of you who may have been wounded by the institutional church. Join forces with me and A Word from the Word by emailing me for support details at a word from the word at minister.com. We'll repeat this info at the end of the program. Well, friends, the name D.W. Sangster may not ring a bell, but after World War II, he was a prominent evangelical Methodist minister in Britain who spearheaded a spiritual removal moment. In 1968, he contracted a disease that progressively paralyzed his body and eventually his vocal cords. On the Easter before he died, with the few fingers that were still able to move, with great pain he scribbled a note to his daughter, which said, How terrible to wake up on Easter and not have a voice to shout, He is risen! Far worse to have a voice and not want to shout it! Well, I love Matthew's account of the resurrection. Chapter 28 begins, After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him, they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, Christos Anesti, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. Matthew's account is key because it's the only gospel that records the first conspiracy theory, a fake narrative for what happened to Jesus' physical body. In verses 11 through 15 we read, The guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we'll satisfy him and get you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. 
Friends, to this very day, in our time in history, alternate theories about what happened to Jesus' body abound. The skeptics and critics love to come out of the woodwork during this season and spout their so-called intelligent recreations of what happened. To date, some 17 theories have been advanced to explain away Jesus' bodily resurrection. Here's a sample of the most popular ones. The legend theory. The resurrection accounts were actually legends that cropped up years after the time of Christ. The wrong tomb theory. After the angel told the women he is not here, see the place where they laid him, probably pointed to the tomb next door, but the women fled in fear. The hallucination theory. Jesus' disciples just thought they saw him, but they were really hallucinating. The stolen body theories. The disciples themselves, or the Jewish or Roman authorities, stole Jesus' body. The ever-popular swoon theory. Jesus didn't actually die on the cross, just fainted from exhaustion and blood loss. The coolness and dampness of the tomb revived him. And the Passover plot theory. Jesus thought he was the Messiah and plotted a detailed plan to concoct his resurrection. It was foiled, though, when the soldier speared him, and he died shortly after. But these theories just distract us from the gospel records authenticated by 1 Corinthians 15. 15, written before the Gospels. Friends, the truth is that in Matthew's resurrection account, three plain statements are made by the angel to the women in verse 6. First, he is not here, and the he is Jesus. Second, he has risen, and third, just as he said. Any alternate theory that claims it was not Jesus himself that rose from the dead, like the twin brother theory that Jesus' twin brother took him down from the cross and claimed to be the Messiah in his stead, makes the angel and Jesus out to be liars. Friends, here's a few statements made by Jesus or about Jesus before and after he was crucified. Recall Peter declared that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Right after that, Matthew says in 6, 1621. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. In Luke's resurrection account in chapter 24, the angel said, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and then the third day rise again? This just reinforces the truth that he is not here. He has risen just as he said. Jesus rose from the dead. The women didn't go to the wrong tomb. The disciples weren't hallucinating. Jesus didn't swoon or faint on the cross and then revive. The disciples didn't steal his body and then fabricate a story that he rose from the dead. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Friends, the truth of Jesus' resurrection was so important to the first disciples that it became the benchmark of their first sermons. At Pentecost, Peter's sermon in Acts 2 included, This man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. 
Shortly after, Peter adds, Fellow Israelites, the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet, and knew God promised him he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Friends, if Easter, and I prefer Resurrection Day, means anything to us, it means eternal truth is eternal. You can nail it to a tree, wrap it up in grave clothes, seal it in a tomb, but truth dashed to the ground will rise again. Truth does not perish. It can't be destroyed. Truth may be distorted. Truth may be temporarily silenced or suppressed, but truth is compelled to carry its cross to Calvary's brow. It may be Friday, but Sunday's coming. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Three-year-old Nicole was anxious for Easter to come, just like Christmas. Her parents took her shopping for new shoes. She said to her dad, I can't wait for Easter. Her dad asked, Honey, do you know what Easter means? She quickly replied, Yes. Then her dad asked, Honey, what does it mean? She shot her arms up with a big smile on her face, shouted loudly, Surprise! Friends, what better word sums up the meaning of Easter, Resurrection Day? Surprise, death. Surprise, sin. Surprise, grieving disciples. Surprise, modern man. He's alive. Christos Anesti. Christ is risen. Anesti Alethos. He is risen indeed. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, we're near the end of our program. Let's live the crucified and resurrected life through Christ so the world sees these paradoxes. Recall Jesus' words in John 16. In this world, you'll have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So we now pray to the risen Lord, the conquering, victorious, and overcoming Lord. I also love coming alongside you who are without a church home, plus those of you who've been wounded by the institutional church. Podcasts are at faithtalk1360.com, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. And thanks to my friends and partners at christianbody.net, this program is aired in over 70 countries. Friends, please join in supporting the ministry of A Word from the Word so we're fully funded. Listeners like you keep A Word from the Word on the air. Well, thanks for listening today, friends. And remember, Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with A Word from the Word. Friends, if you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, email him at a word from the word at minister.com. That's a word from the word at minister.com. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.